scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. to continue our discussion of Victorian art adaptations in the fourth episode of our summer 2018 miniseries, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians. So this is episode four, part two. If you haven't listened to the first part, I'd suggest going back and starting there. Kind of left off on pre-Raphaelite drama, um, as most (laughs) conversations about Victorian art often do. Um... And I wanted to also talk a bit now about, um, so we were talking about Ruskin, John Ruskin, and his kind of overarching influence and um, his promotion of the Gothic and the idea of handcrafting being sort of morally superior Mm -hmm. um, in a variety of ways. And this um, kind of the, the closest, the person who takes this up the most kind of directly from Ruskin is William Morris. And William Morris is really different than um, pretty much everything else that we've talked about so far. Um, he's not a good painter. He tries and he's bad at it. Um, yeah, it's the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood who sort of tried to convince yeah. him to become a painter, <laughs> yeah. right? And then he does it and they're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> this is going to be your thing. Back to your poetry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so he's about... Uh, five-ish years younger than the main sort of core group of pre-Raphaelites. And um, he and his sort of long-term best friend, Edward Byrne-Jones, meet at Oxford and they start reading Ruskin and they get all hyped up about medieval works and medieval guilds and medieval poetry. And um, they go about it in very different ways and like stylistically very different and the, the things that they're interested in very different. But Morris basically revolutionizes the the conception of craft in the Victorian period. So crafting, um, I think at the time and also now having connotations of um, being female, um, Mm. female works of art, things like uh, textile work, embroidery, um, cross-stitch samplers, things that were used to beautify your home, but were not necessarily considered fine art. And Morris and Ruskin see this as beautifying your home is sort of the start to living a better life in right. a lot of ways. Yeah. And Ruskin in, in um, some of his essays, like on Queen's Gardens, um, talks about like, you know, the woman being this sort of moralizing center, and this is why home life is important, and, um, and all this stuff. And so they... They want craft to be considered more important, and one of the ways that they go about doing that is is making um, the firm Morris and Company. Um, Morris forms this and um, producing works for the home that were created mostly by hand, also by I mean, there's some machine work. He's not totally opposed to that, but this push towards like art as something that you should be using to inhabit your space. The sort of main quote for this is um, "Have nothing in your home that you do not." 
uh, I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> Nothing in your home which you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful, something like that. Um, so it's like the Victorian, what is it, Condori method? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does the, this thing bring you yeah. joy? Yeah. <laughs> the Victorian life-changing magic of yes. <laughs> beautifying your home. Yeah, exactly. Does this wallpaper bring you joy then? <laughs> um so again, like not painting, not sort of like fine art, capital A art, um, that that it would have been considered at the time, but um, it really shapes a lot of interior decorating and um, is now very sought after. Um, mm-hmm. Like his patterns are still around. Morris and Co. still exists. Um, you can get coloring books of his wallpaper yeah. patterns, which I have. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> Um, very soothing, actually. Yes, yeah. yeah, and it's it's one of those things where um, Morris is a very contradictory person in a lot of ways, and um, one of the ways in which this is the case is that he he's becomes quite an ardent socialist and forms the Hammersmith Socialist League and is like really pushing for for worker rights, but his works are often way too expensive for your average mm-hmm. person to afford. Um, and this is particularly true when he starts a printing press um, in the 1890s and, and makes these amazing fine press crafted books that like no one can buy at the time, um, which you know kind of undercuts his sort of socialist message. But um, it's also the thing where it's a, a guild system, effectively his company. But you know he sort of gets a lot of the credit. Mm-hmm. for things when um, his daughter May, for instance, did some of the wallpaper designs and has now gotten mm. some credit or people have tried to figure out, you know, which designs did he do? What did, what did she do? John Henry Deerle, who was one of his associates as well, often did a, a lot of the textile design um, and only sometimes gets sort of acknowledgement mm. for that too. So a lot of kind of well intentioned um, yeah. some of the time, but... He's a man of contradictions. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. And we were just talking about this earlier about sort of wallpaper pigments and mm-hmm. um, arsenic that is often used to kind of ramp up those colors, um, starting yeah. with Shields Green, and then um, it transitions to a bunch of other other um, prints. And he his wallpapers had less arsenic content in it um, because he was trying to go back to sort of natural dyeing methods and move Mm -hmm. away from Mm -hmm. chemicals. But most of the the wallpaper manufacturers at the time knew that arsenic wasn't sort of spectacular for you to be breathing in, but really kind of suppressed any sort of major changes because Mm -hmm. there was such a popularity for it. Um, Yeah. I mean, at the same time, one could easily buy lotions for one's face. Oh, absolutely. medicines but full of arsenic and mm-hmm. also lead i know there mm-hmm. were a lot of lotions that were just basically lead, lead masks. yeah um yeah, yeah. And, and the victorians did have some sense that these things were not maybe good for them mm-hmm. but they kept using them anyway but it was also like the symptoms that they presented like arsenic poisoning symptoms um are really close to those for food poisoning or cholera or like a whole variety of other illnesses Mm -hmm. that were relatively common at the time so you wouldn't necessarily know what the issue was for a while too yeah yeah and you're right like the the sort of toxicity of a lot of the products for consumption Mm -hmm. i mean wallpaper was just one of yeah. One of them. <laughs> um, but also I think it's kind of a good rule of thumb if you somehow time travel back to Victorian England that the more vibrant a color is, the more you should avoid that color. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. Good. And it becomes this, I, I think, in response to um, 
sort of the more pared down neoclassicism of earlier in the century. So this sort of um, like just sort of uh, kind of white spaces, white columns, like a very sort of stereotypical kind of Greek or neoclassical kind of design element. Um, the Victorians now suddenly have a ton of access to, um, again, mass produced furniture in a new way, carpets, wallpaper, furnishings. And it's fashionable to kind of put as much stuff as you can in your parlors. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have these like, really, really vibrant green walls with red carpets, with things in bell jars, with, um, you know, just a ton of what we would now kind of see as like dizzying sorts of, um, you know, competing textures and patterns and colors. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time that was kind of a fashionable thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so that also Morris is, uh, his opinions about everything, um, and, and has some kind of strong feelings about like you know make things more harmonious make Mm. sure everything is matching um or at least not fighting with each other um which is definitely a necessary perspective yeah (laughs) Yeah, Um, because it is kind of wild when people criticize the victorians as being garish that's a very justified criticism yeah 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 it's not Um, wrong (laughs) yeah. yeah so he kind of takes up both like medieval working practices, but then also medieval themes um, in what he chooses to print. So Morris, again, is annoyed by commercial printing in the 19th century, which he sees as too cheaply made and too shoddy and using inferior kind of paper and ink Mm -hmm. and binding. And so he moves back to this, you know, using a, um, a hand press, making paper by hand, or he has someone else make paper by hand and send it to him um, and prints a lot of kind of medieval works as well. Um, the most kind of notorious and, and famous of his printings is the Kelmscott Chaucer. So he's reprinting Chaucer, like the right. most sort of medieval right. thing yes. you can do. Mm-hmm. Also making his own sort of medieval um fantasy novels mm-hmm. too yeah. writing and printing those um, yeah many of which you can find on the william morris archive mm-hmm. um, in digital facsimiles which are really nice to look at definitely and he really um he would have been mad about being called a renaissance man probably but he was in a lot of mm-hmm. ways because he um in addition to printing he kind of dabbles in calligraphy mm-hmm. um and a lot of those have been digitized as well um and they're they're pretty amazing to look at too. Yeah. but yeah and even in um something like news from nowhere which is his um kind of work imagining a utopian society the um the protagonist goes back to the medieval period or at least like a pre-industrial kind of london like he's in london and then suddenly he's back and there's i think it's technically the future but it's a future yes, like a, exactly a but post-industrial mm-hmm. future that yeah doesn't that's even what it is books yeah although i think he kind of sneakily reads them mm. as an older man i haven't actually read it but i have read a lot of scholars takes yeah on this it. is also my it's on it's on the list of things i need to read same yeah, but it's like he's his version of a perfect society is one that has no books. It has a, is very weird. Again, yeah. very contradictory, yeah. <laughs> contradictory um. person. Um, he also um, he goes to Iceland and like does translations of Icelandic stories with a friend of his, and just is working in a ton of different media. And I think he's this interesting figure for. Um, 
again, is a contradicting study in sort of feminist concerns because he learns how to embroider mm. um, his his wife, Jane Burden Morris, and her sister, you know, teach him how to do that. And, and he picks it up and he, he educates his daughters in kind of the best way uh, for the time. He was never, you know, stinting with their education and, mm. you know, encouraged them to pursue art, but also kind of focused on other things with them as well. But the whole idea of you know, the fact that he takes up craft as this art form, it kind of hides a lot of the labor that women had been doing mm. uh, for a long time and were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he is this sort of wealthier male, he's able to get kind of attention for doing this in a way that, you know, your average lace maker or seamstress at the time just wouldn't. Um, right. And so there's also that, it like it removes a lot of the sort of I don't want to say agency, but like the power of some of the work away from the people who had been kind mm-hmm. of historically creating it. Yeah. By bringing attention to it, which was a good thing, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that's a really good point that he can sort of, I mean, he's appropriating. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He can, he can take this form without all of the negative um, yeah. that goes with it and all the hardship that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he can also like, um, he does tend to kind of pick up themes and projects and then can drop them whenever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a seamstress and sewing things is your livelihood, you're working really long days, you're working in really bad lighting conditions a lot of the time, and, you know, he's able to to have more kind of boundaries, too. Mm-hmm. Um, he can do things for a little bit and then stop, whereas if you're embroidering for a living, you can't do that. Right. You're embroidering until you lose your eyesight embroidering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that also becomes a, a theme in genre paintings as well. Mm. Um, and based in part on um, Thomas Hood's The Song of the Shirt, um, mm. which is a I think kind of mid-century poem cycle about being a seamstress. And mm, yeah. um, it's very sad and maudlin. Um, but there's um, you know, kind of multiple works that develop around the idea of these seamstresses up in um, these garret apartments that are really cold and drafty and they're like sewing by the window because there's no other light and Mm -hmm. um, they kind of feel these genre paintings often feel sort of over the top to us now I think because they are sort of sensational Mm -hmm. um, but they're not incorrect about sort of the hardness of these lighting yeah just even in terms of lighting Mm -hmm. um, gas lighting becomes popular during the victorian period but it's really only available to the wealthy yeah um so you have candlelight you have firelight and you have daylight Mm -hmm. um and it's london it's not there's not that much daylight like that's only for part of the year and it's like smoky there a lot of the time now the burning of coal which was still the primary way to heat and light one's home was contributing to some serious smog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the day that you had was not especially bright a lot yeah. of the time for yeah. a variety of reasons. Yeah, which makes and if you think about um, sort of the difficulty of, of doing such tiny stitches to like embroidery mm-hmm. is inherently working very small um, and then compound that by, you know, this really lack of um, 
lighting conditions mm-hmm. or in some cases, you know, eyeglasses, like eye strain leading to, yeah. to rapidly worsening eyesight in and a way that, that yeah. you know, now can be mitigated. And if you had any sort of illness that had extended fever, then you're mm-hmm. probably also dealing with, which was really common, like yeah. smallpox or even just random um random illnesses random unnamed illnesses where they're they're untreated so your fever rages a little too long and then suddenly yeah you can't see well anymore ever again right which makes it just so much more remarkable that there is so much artistic production in this period at all and that it has such fine detail and yeah. that it captures such quality of light, I think. Oh, absolutely. And like that is um you know we've talked about the Pre-Raphaelites being sort of these like, you know, manifesto writing uh, punks, basically, <laughs> um, for lack of a better word, but like you know, these 18, 19 year old kind of brash um, uh, boys, effectively. But they, the work that they're producing and the detail that they're producing it in is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at those sort of early works and the fact that they're, um, you know, Holman Hunt and, and Millet in particular are spending all this time outside and you know, having to deal with weather conditions. And Millie has these letters about being mad about, like, being outside and getting bit by flies. And he's like, why am I doing this? <laughs> and, like, really cranky about it on the banks of this river. Um, and, yeah, sort of, like, the time kind of inherent in all of these. Um, so even though, like, the Paraphilites aren't really responding directly to industrialization, the very fact of their work is because it's it's working slowly for kind of specifically on on slow printing um elizabeth carolyn miller has an amazing book on on slow printing in the victorian period and how morris but then also how that that starts to kind of translate into other um other printers and mm-hmm. and periodicals even sometimes um but yeah about that to, having the luxury of time mm-hmm. to do this work is in contrast to a lot of kind of things happening at the period. People often speak of the rapid pace of the 19th century in um, works in the period. Um, mm-hmm. Thoreau famously called it the tintinabulum of the 19th century or something mm-hmm. like that, but people are often talking about how fast it was, which if you think about it, they'd gone from whatever speed a, a horse and buggy can go to the speed of a train. Yeah. And industrialization meant that people were working on clock time instead of sunrise to sunset in a more rural kind of situation. And so not only were their lives faster, but also more regimented by time. And having those, the the development of the railroad in particular, um, it gets taken up in artworks. Again, not something the Paraphilites are doing because they Mm -hmm. were like modern life. No. And like Mm -hmm. looking at, again, historical subjects, biblical subjects. But you're, you know, there's a ton of other painters at the time who we just tend to not talk about as much. Um, but people like William Powell Frith and Augustus Egg, who do these um, these genre scenes that are are set in railroad stations or railroad mm. cars, and this um, Frith in particular does these massive paintings with you know tons and tons of people just kind of spilling all around them and. Um, there's these kind of little narrative dramas playing out throughout the um, the course of the work, and and the implication of the railroad in particular being um, it was a space for the classes to kind of mix and mm-hmm. the genders to mix and a space for sometimes illicit activity. There's often someone who's like a pickpocket in these mm-hmm. scenes, and 
Um, there's often, you know, people flirting covertly on the side or um, these scenes of railroad cars where, yeah, like a, a young man has been able to like insinuate himself by this woman and hmm. her chaperone, something like that. So pointing to like, you know, these are things that could happen with mm-hmm. um, with transit and with this sort of faster kind of pace of life too. And I think kind of, I mean, for in terms of kind of newness, if we're thinking about that and artistic innovation, um, I mean, photography really is kind of the the thing yes. in the 19th century yeah. too. And I'm, I'm not a photographic historian, so um, kind of the, the sort of early works for some of this I know a little bit less about, but for someone like Julia Margaret Cameron, who's sort of the most famous um Victorian art photographer mm-hmm. anyway um like she really is playing with this new medium and it's mm-hmm. something that is still kind of untested there's space to innovate it there's space to manipulate the plates and um, her works often have this sort of fuzzy kind of diaphanous quality that you can achieve by you know moving things slightly while you're shooting yes. and um yeah, yeah. and so the potential and sort of the fraught place of photography within sort of cultural discussions about whether it's art or science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's a really great monograph on this called Framing the Victorians by Jennifer Green Lewis, where she talks about the development of photography in the Victorian period. Daniel Novak also has a monograph on it. Um, I will try to link to that in the show notes if I remember. But um, there was this contemporary debate um, journalists and essay writers such as Lady Elizabeth Eastlake uh, had real qualms about whether or not photography could be considered art because the Victorians really had strong, com- I want to say convictions, strong, they were convinced that art needed to capture life without being completely real, that there needed to be enough distance between art and the real for one to, um, draw morals, uh, for one to be able to step back and sort of um, react to what one was seeing or the characters one was reading about as if they are a lesson, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why I think Victorians are often considered a super didactic culture. Yeah. Um, and Lady Elizabeth Eastlake was of the opinion that photography could be art, but only if it was doing something to sort of obscure this really naked, raw realism that Victorians felt photographs were producing. Um, And so like a blurred image of the sort that Julia Margaret Cameron worked to produce would count as art, whereas just a regular photograph, a a portrait, for example, might not. Um, They hadn't quite... I think we we still even forget the fact that by choosing a subject and framing it with the lens, we are interpreting yeah. something. Yeah, it's um, a mediated yeah. object at that yeah. point. So it's not as real as the Victorians thought. It's not as unmediated as the Victorians thought. Um, but there was this debate raged for decades. Absolutely. And the way that, um, I mean, photography, when it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's contentious about who's sort of, developing kind of glass plate photography or collodion Mm -hmm. photography kind of um it all sort of happens really quickly um in a couple different areas but um daguerre in in france when 
the inventor of the daguerreotype. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, his initial works are, are focusing on still life because, again, like having you need to have the scene be still and and mm-hmm. people move around and um, the um, Henry um, Talbot Fox Fox Talbot. Yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he has another name in there too, but um, oh, Victoria. Uh, and there are many names. Talbot. Um, Similar thing, like starts doing work with nature, um, mm-hmm. nature studies, and um, John Herschel, who's this really kind of important figure in a variety of um, scientific and artistic genres, um, invents the cyanotype and is used kind of predominantly for initially um, nature studies, and then mm-hmm. that's the process that you used to make blueprints as well. And so the very origins of photography is being linked to something that is scientific or botanical mm-hmm. or, um, you know, to be used for study as this kind of tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have, you know, artists coming along that are doing something very different with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some of these methods were patented mm. by, or are very like copyrighted and controlled by their inventors. Yeah. Um, but I think around I want to say 1856, somewhere between 1854 and 1856, I believe, is when um, a widely available method that amateur photographers with enough means to afford a camera Mm -hmm. could take up, um, which is when Charles Dodgson, who you probably know as the author Lewis Carroll, first stumbled across a camera and found one of his lifelong passions. Um, And actually, most of his albums most of the albums we know about are that still exist of his um have been digitized by the harry ransom center in austin and i will link to them so he tended he he took a lot of photographs of children um often dressed up in fantastical and medieval costumes so i think he was doing some interesting adaptation work um i don't know much about julia margaret cameron's subjects i don't it was often um and so again like like with with lewis carroll this sets her apart from um some of the more like scientific photographers of the day or even um carte de visite so like small um kind of pocket-sized images often of actresses or or other sort of attractive Mm -hmm. women but um which would be sort of produced and then collected by a clientele so like portraits um sort of like trading cards yeah it's it's absolutely like that yeah um and just sort of you know uh portraiture generally becomes, um, you know, much more popular as the the century goes on. But Julia Margaret Cameron is interested in something else. Um, and she she gets a camera in um, at the age of 48 from, I think, her children mm. get that to her as a birthday present. And um, so she takes it up kind of relatively late in, in her life. But um, she does a mix of these sort of allegorical scenes and um, kind of biblical themes as well and so Mm -hmm. again dressing up um models from um subjects from tennyson from the bible from really similar kind of um sources that the pre-raphaelites were also using Mm -hmm. um also using uh her family as models and um working class folks from her kind of neighborhood as well Mm -hmm. um as well as sometimes her her maid um or, Mm -hmm. or servants that were in their house which 
is this sort of interesting power differential as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there already is that kind of power differential between an artist and a model, particularly in the 19th century, where these yes. often yeah. the model is a younger woman. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Cameron kind of calling on her, like her staff sometimes to model for her. You sort of wonder kind of yeah. what, how much say they had in some of this too. It's clearly outside of the typical, um, job description for someone in service right (laughs) um yeah exactly and um yeah so she has this this range of of kind of themes she does do some portraits and actually one of her i think really most arresting ones is of john herschel so this Mm. um this scientist this inventor this this um the person who, who comes up with the cyanotype um because he so often is kind of discussed in photographic circles and and was not commonly photographed himself mm-hmm. and it's this you know he's he's quite elderly when she um she takes this portrait and it's um it's really good like she was and you you sort of hear this language a lot with photography about like capturing the person's mm-hmm. personality and mm-hmm. um i don't know like that's kind of a debatable thing i think but she you do get a sense from a lot of her works um that she was was able to get people to act at least in a way that feels honest. Yeah, which for a process where you had to be still for longer periods of time is also pretty amazing. Difficult. Yeah. So yeah. many, so many portraits of the period just look very stilted. Um, there's a lot of false identification of of people as dead, like standing mm-hmm. up and that there's this. It's really an urban legend. I think it's been disproved. There was a lot of photography of the dead mm-hmm. in the period, but not standing up. Um, but often um, you'll get somebody who is so still or they've closed their eyes because they've been standing there for minutes. And um, and so it, they just look very corpse-like yeah. just because of the lengthy, arduous nature of the process. Well, the fact that a lot of people aren't smiling yeah. as well because it, like, it hurts to smile yeah. for, you know. Often photographers would make you stand in braces to, to keep you, you still enough yeah. to not ruin the, the shot. Yeah, yeah, so you're often in pain for mm-hmm. some of these portraits as well. Yeah. well and when the, the sort of genre of spirit photography... Um, ends up developing this idea of kind of capturing the spirit world on film like that's you can do that through the manipulation of the glass plates or like photographing Mm -hmm. with another plate in front of it so that you have this kind of overlay but there's also some cases where you know people had had found these images and were claiming that they proved the presence of ghosts in this house and it was often someone walking through the frame Mm -hmm. while the photograph was being taken and being imprinted as this blur. Um, There's one where it's the, you can sort of see this sort of ghostly figure sitting in a chair and it's, you know, they finally kind of figured out that it was probably a servant who had like come in and just sat down for a minute and then gotten up. Mm -hmm. Um, But it becomes this sort of trace um, yeah. which people learned how to, again, manipulate really early on and, and you get these interesting effects. Um, and again, Cameron, you know, being not from a, a sort of scientific background, um, and sort of self-teaching a lot of this, um, is able to get these really, really stunning atmospheric kind mm-hmm. of blurred images that, um, yeah, were more palatable as artworks than mm-hmm. sort of, 
kind of documentary photography mm-hmm. yeah more recognized i guess i should mm-hmm. say that this debate of um art versus science goes back to art versus nature ultimately mm. so um photography seemed to capture the world such that it seemed like it was just nature um whereas art is always imitation of nature in these sorts of debates yeah um, so and if it, you can't recognize it as an imitation it can't be art right and I think it also, there's this sort of hierarchy of genres um, that, I mean, from kind of the Renaissance onward, but it really picks up in the, the 1700s, this idea of the works that are the most noble for you to be producing are things like religious or history subjects, and then kind of down to uh, genre, and then landscape, and then still life being sort of the last. And like those last ones are... Um, the lowest because um, you're just replicating what you see. Mm -hmm. So the idea of like painting a still life is you're not putting decisions into it like you would be if you were painting, um, you know, a biblical scene. You have to set the the stage. You have to do the, you know, all these questions about where people are going to be placed and proportion and perspective. Um, And the idea of just like, oh, you're just looking at a bowl of flowers and and painting that. But of course, like with photography, you're making artistic choices Mm -hmm. there as well. Um, And that sort of, I mean, with kind of the rise of Impressionism in France and, um, you know, the later part of the 19th century, that that hierarchy gets destabilized because so much of what they're doing is landscape and still life as well. Yeah. This is a good time for a break. We'll be back right after this. And we're back. Right, so a um, kind of part of the criticism surrounding Cameron too, like so there is this tension between sort of art and science and the purpose of photography, but there's also this gendered element. Um, it's kind of pervasive in art criticism at the time generally, and mm-hmm. I suspect in literary criticism as well, as well a lot of the time. But um, the way that her work is discussed is often um, very condescending, um, even for sort of the art criticism at the time. So especially frustrating i suspect for her by um by her photographer peers and um in a review from 1865 from the photographic journal um, one of her colleagues wrote um this is a quote from him mrs cameron exhibits her series of out of focus portraits of celebrities we must give this lady credit for daring originality but at the expense of all other photographic qualities a true artist would employ all the resources at his disposal in whatever branch of art he might practice. In these pictures, all that is good in photography has been neglected, and the shortcomings of the art are prominently exhibited. We are sorry to have to speak thus severely on the works of a lady, but we feel compelled to do so in the interest of the art. Uh. Gross. Uh. <laughs> um, just, uh, there's a, like kind of similar things in the Illustrated London News. Um, 
sometimes, uh, but it seems like the photographic journal in particular was was especially kind of snippy about a lot mm. of this. Um, I suspect in part because, you know, it's people that are, are practicing the same media that she is, and mm-hmm. she's better at it than they are, frankly, yeah, and they don't yeah. love that that's happening. And you kind of, in a capitalist art market, you... Yeah, it feels like a zero-sum game mm-hmm. to many of them. Yeah. 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 Um, so, again, like, that tone of that, I think, is is pretty telling in a lot of ways yes. as well. Um, yeah. And, they, and this association, again, of women with sort of lesser art forms like embroidery or photography mm-hmm. or things that are not painting or sculpture. Um, and one of the other areas where, where we kind of see sort of a density of, of female artists, which... As you've noticed throughout these episodes, a lot of the people that we've been talking about have been men um, mm-hmm. and in these sort of positions of power and in the art historical canon, the works that kind of get highlighted. Um, but illustration is one area where there are often um, more women that mm-hmm. are, are producing work. And, and we wanted to kind of wrap up this discussion by looking at um, Jesse Marion King. Um, who is uh, an artist that's based in, in Glasgow a little bit later in the century and um, just kind of think about illustration in that context as well. Um, yeah. I mean, illustration and I guess book cover design is also yeah. a burgeoning area right around the turn of the century where women are really the leading artists. Yeah. Um, and, and binding, there's um, actually the Guild of Women Binders in London is started, um, I think, in the 1890s and it doesn't last long, but it's like these art bindings mm-hmm. that they were producing that were really sought after. Yeah. Um, but you might have heard of um, illustrators like, so we're going to talk more about Jessie Marion King because her work is so striking. Um, I just stumbled across it in researching this episode and had to... Um, fit it in but others that you may have heard of are Kate Greenaway Kate Greenaway is the big one whose work you have probably seen I mean even people like you know it's a later example but like Beatrix Potter um you know artists that are doing or authors I mean this is right around like 1905 I think yeah her stuff starts coming out um yeah so not much later but yes um but Jessie Marion King is um the example of her work we're looking at is uh Queen Guinevere none with her save a little maid a novice and um and I knew nothing about Jessie Marion King I'd I'd heard of her because um so when Morris's arts and crafts movement kind of takes off um, in the UK, one of the the other major sites for it. Um, so there's kind of um, a craft movement in Birmingham and Liverpool a little bit, but um, Glasgow is sort of the the major site of li- slightly later arts and crafts production. And um, people like Charles Reedy Mackintosh and um, these other communities that have a very distinctive and like kind of Art Nouveau sort of style to them. Um, so King is associated with, with some of those groups as well. Um, but we, neither one of us had ever seen this illustration before. And I think what, what I found so compelling about it was um, it's very stylized in some ways and kind of angular. And mm-hmm. if you know the work of Aubrey Beardsley, um, these sort of kind of just elongated forms yeah. um, and kind of a pared down setting so that mm-hmm. the, the figures really stand out. Um, that's that's clearly a mode that she's also sort of working in. Um, and kind of this, uh, we didn't really talk about 
Edward Byrne Jones, but um, his work is also really kind of steeped in um, kind of classical design and also these sort of elongated figures. And Mm. um, I know those are kind of the sort of the immediate comparisons that jump to mind, but this is so different from from any of those works or anything that we've really been looking yeah. at. I mean, even just in terms of color, it strikes me as very different. It's muted, mm-hmm. muted um, grays and, and off whites and creams. Um, when most of the paintings that we've talked about this uh, in the past couple of episodes are full of vibrant uh, colors. Yeah. And for, like, I'm not sure what the kind of the market was for, for this work, but um, it's, yeah, it's much more subtle than mm-hmm. I think a lot of um, kind of illustration was, um, or yeah. really works produced at the time were. I mean, she's using a combination of pen and ink and watercolor, according to the the notes here on Victorian Web. And it's, it looks like that. Yeah, and it's on vellum, apparently, which is kind of hard to tell in a digital document. But um, actually, maybe some of these off-whites are just the color of the vellum then. Mm-hmm. Which is also like that's um it's kind of a difficult surface to to sometimes contend with, I think, too. Mm, like yeah. um I mean it's it was used for a very long time and it's it's quite easy and, and good and conducive for using pen and ink. But I would be curious about how watercolor actually yeah. kind of works on that. Yeah. And a lot of the like um Morris's Kelmscott press books, those like fancy fine press books that he was producing, have uh, wood engravings mm-hmm. that are produced with them um, as part of them. Burne Jones did a lot of the design for those, which is a much more stark kind of style as well. Yeah. Like this is minimalist in a lot of ways, but yeah. Um, well, especially at this is um, I think it's nineteen hundred. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so especially at this date, illustration is moving more and more toward um, photo reproduction processes so they will do a wood engraving and then take a photo of it or maybe no they'll take a photo i am mixing up the whole process Um, (laughs) anyway so it's a much more um i don't want to say automated but it's a much Mm -hmm. more industrial process of um an artist produces the work and then it's mediated by several other artists basically, but um, technicians or tradespeople mm-hmm. uh, to, to render it printable um, cheaply and easily. Yeah, there's a removal kind of from mm. the artist and the finished. Yeah. And, like, I mean, if she she is in, involved with and invested with craft mm-hmm. um, and the idea of making things by hand, then, you know, this is, this is a really clear example where um, it's clearly been, you know, someone has painted watercolor on this piece of vellum Mm -hmm. and um yeah 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 when depending on how that gets reproduced or not there's still this sort of very tangible effect and i also think i mean um we talked about this a bit like the working on a small scale Mm -hmm. and how that often does get dismissed um when you think about these like giant scale pre-raphaelite works which are you know amazing in their their own way but um something like this something like watercolor or embroidery or typesetting or or anything that's sort of finely detailed um and smaller Mm -hmm. often gets kind of less valued um canonically but it's 
this incredible amount of work and this mm-hmm. sort of intimate relationship that you have with it that yeah. you don't necessarily get with a giant painting when it's something you can hold and, mm-hmm. and study and um, it's really kind of trying to highlight sort of the different values of some of these yeah um, both kind of historically at the time and then also now how that still sort of translates to how we talk about these works I'm just marveling at the amount of detail in this hair, for example. Yeah. And the yeah, just all of the all of the pen. My brain is losing all of its diction. Right now. <laughs> well, and the way yeah. that that Guinevere's cloak is so like there's this kind of subtle pattern of like floral kind of yeah. design, but it's um yeah really both detailed and also kind of subtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, check out Jessie Marion King. Um, it's making me want to go read everything about her. So, such a striking image, and uh, the description—it's just like the size of a paperback. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just so—you'll just want to stare at it for a very long time. It's beautiful. Which is basically what we've been doing. Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of yeah. looking at it in awe. So, um, so we'll leave you with that recommendation. Um, so thank you, Anna. It's been a blast. Yeah, this has been really fun. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, come by Mr. George J. Gaskin. A little maiden climbed an old man's sleep, and for a story to understand. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? I had a sweetheart years, years ago. Where she is now, and you will soon go. Let's do the story. I'll tell it all. I believe her life All of the music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the Ball